Atamarie, welcome to First Up. It's Rahina, Monday the 20th of June, Connacht Truebridge Aho. Coming up, horror as a Sunday morning crash near Picton leaves seven people dead and emergency services traumatised. The region's Deputy Mayor Nadine Taylor has the latest. With just days to go before the first ever Matariki public holiday, we'll talk to one of the people who made it happen, Māori astronomy expert Rangi Matamua, and a Dunedin food truck trying to make things better, one delicious $4 meal at a time. We kind of ended up in New Zealand and decided we want to do something that feels meaningful to us and also is fun and something new. And especially because right now is kind of the time to do it. Like food prices are pretty expensive here, as everyone knows. Tamaria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nick Truebridge and for Nathan Rarity this morning. We're going to start in the United States where the Centers for Disease Control has finally recommended COVID vaccines for under five-year-olds. Joining me now from New York, from Prospect Park, I think, is Anna Burns-Francis. Morena, Anna. Good morning, Nick. Yes, you caught me on a lovely, slightly gusty, but warm spring day. Uh, yeah, um, I was going to say, in, you're, in our Brooklyn. you're in the middle of, uh, you're in summer, but you're wearing a jacket. Yeah, it's very hit and miss. It was freezing yesterday. I went out in shorts and really misjudged that one. So I've prepared a bit better today because we're out filming a story. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, let's start with these vaccines. What What's taken so long for them to be approved for this age group? Well, a couple of things. I think fairly there has been a lot of concern from parents in the United States. And so the FDA and then the CDC were really quite conscious of making sure they had all the information that they wanted from these vaccine makers from Pfizer and Moderna that it was absolutely safe to give to children this young from six months onwards. The other issue they had is that in those first rounds of trials, uh, Moderna actually wasn't seeing the results that it expected to. It wasn't getting the efficacy level that it wanted to see where they wanted to replicate that more effective adult dose level. So they reduced the dosage, stretched out the number of doses, and they've finally, both Pfizer and Moderna, have now seen the results that they're happy to have approved, and that's where we've got to today that the vaccines are approved now for Six years, six months onwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's June. It's 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 a public holiday there, isn't it? It's Juneteenth. Uh, so how how is that marked over there? Look, you don't get many public holidays no. in America, and as yeah. per usual, it might be a federal holiday, but depending on where you live, do you actually get a day off? Well, you know, maybe, maybe not. You know, here in New York, of course, it is a federal holiday, so it's it's a Sunday still here by the way. So the, the holiday is either partly today or partly tomorrow, depending on who you work for and where yeah. in the country you work. So postal offices are closed today and tomorrow. That's not unusual for them to be closed on a Sunday. But then big distribution warehouses like those for Nike, they're closing today, a Sunday. Okay, that's great. But only their corporate office is closed tomorrow on a Monday. Well, look, the whole point of Juneteenth, they think, is to recognise uh, the people who have most been affected over the generations by slavery and by American history. And that is the people who work in largely distribution centres, retail, you know, customer service jobs and the like. Those are the sorts of people that probably need tomorrow off, but may not see it yet. Only 18 states recognise Juneteenth at the moment. Right, so it's luck of the, I mean, it's luck of the draw, really, isn't it? Well, you know, you wouldn't want to be in Florida, but of course it's, mm. it is the emancipation of slaves from Texas uh, in 1865. And so Texas has recognised it as a federal holiday for quite some time. Now, mm. Joe Biden announced it last year, but what that announcement actually meant was that each state had to then create some funding so they it then goes down to a state level and whether they will allow the funding because of course corporates don't want to pay for another day off americans already get four days off a year i think 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we don't know how lucky we've got it back here, really. But, uh, hey, look, um, moving on, anti-Trump Republicans are, are facing uh, electoral repercussions. Who's Who are sort of the latest victims of, of the backlash, I suppose? Yeah, they call them the impeachment 10. Now, these were the Republicans, the few Republicans that voted to impeach Donald Trump last year after inciting that riot uh, at the Capitol. And, of course, that's the focus of those hearings at the moment. But these Republicans, because midterms are coming up, are now finding themselves in a bit of a battle. Their past voting record is being brought up and particularly far hard-right conservative Trump supporters are saying, well, you didn't support the president, so we're not going to support you. The the issue it comes down to really is that, yes, that might be part of their voting record that they voted to impeach Trump, but the other thing you have to balance it with, you should be aware but possibly wary of how these results are coming out, is that in many states, these are really hard-right Republican areas anyway, and so they were quite likely to fall towards whoever Donald Trump supported. So it's not across the board, it's not a sweeping wave towards support for Donald Trump, but certainly there are some lower-level uh, Congress people finding themselves up for re-election. The majority, though, actually probably voted to impeach because they're not standing again. They knew they could take the political risk. It didn't matter to them. Mm, yeah, and sort of uh, sticking to Trump, uh, January 6th hearings are continuing. So what are we going to see this week, do you think? Yeah, well, this, now the focus has turned. So we saw this week uh, that we've just had a lot of the pressure that was put on uh, Mike Pence, the vice president, to flip the election result. Well, of course, this was a sweeping effort by the Trump team. They targeted as broadly as possible. They went after the states as well and the state officials where Trump had lost, but he thought that he could wrongly flip the result in his favour. So the focus this week is officials from Arizona and from Georgia who will be giving evidence. Of course, we saw in Georgia the uh, state officials actually recorded one of their phone calls where Donald Trump was heard to say, you know, just flip the flip the votes, find me the votes, find 11,000 votes. There's got to be 11,000 votes out there, Brad. So, of course, this is the focus now on those state officials who really, no one actually knows who they are most of the time, but they came under a huge amount of pressure from the president to try and find him the result he wanted. Yeah, and let's move to the incumbent. Uh, Biden, bikes, not really a mix. Tell us what's gone on here. Look, it's, it's quite funny because it's not a thing that I see a lot of in New Zealand, but it's quite popular in America to have what they call toe cages, which is so you don't properly click in and you don't just put yeah. your foot straight on the pedal. You have that funny little 80s looking wire contraption. And so that's what he was using. Right. Um, look, rightly or wrongly, I suspect his bike might have some modifications made to it in the next couple of days. But mm. he was riding, he's got his foot caught and he's fallen off the bike. Now, he doesn't appear to have suffered any long-term damage. He was seen walking um, that afternoon outside church just fine, no problems at all. But, of course, it's made the headlines here because Biden, like nearly every other politician in high power in America, is quite old. Uh, don't worry, Donald Trump's promised he won't be riding a bike anytime soon, as if anyone thought he would any- anyway. Yeah, seriously. I mean, it's like, it's like you know, you, you, you become a, a leader and you, you, you lose your sort of skill. We've got, um, we've got Biden, obviously, and then we've had Boris, and, and then ScoMo had a few mess-ups overseas as well. So um, don't know what it is. Hey, uh, thanks, Anna. Get out of the wind. Uh, thanks very much, Anna Burns-Francis from New York there. Right, it is uh, 11 minutes, nearly 12 minutes past five. Uh, you're listening to First Up with RNZ on RNZ National with Nick Trubridge. We're keen for your feedback. Uh, we've got a public holiday on Friday. Are you going to be starting something new for Matariki or, or anything else that takes your fancy? You can text us on 2101, tweet us at First Up RNZ, 
or email firstup at rnz.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at firstuprnz. Uh, right, less than two months after beating his far-right opponents, uh, opponent in France's presidential election, President Emmanuel Macron is facing another threat to his hold on power. This time, French voters will decide the makeup of the National Assembly, and a loss of an outright majority will make it difficult for the president to push, push his agenda of reform. The BBC's Hugh Schofield has this report. It's the fourth time in two months that the French have been called out to vote. Two rounds of presidentials that returned Emmanuel Macron for a second term. And now this, a chance at the parliamentary elections for his opponents, especially those on the left, to get their revenge. Man of the hour is Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the 70-year-old veteran of the far left who's forged a new alliance out of four separate parties, including the Socialists and the Greens. His tactical flair and savage and sarcastic attacks on Macron have, in a few short weeks, transformed the left's chances. Now it's an invigorated left and far left, rather than Marine Le Pen's far right, that's become the main opposition. For Emmanuel Macron, this week playing up his presidential role in Ukraine, today's vote is crucial. His centre-right coalition should still beat Mélenchon's left into second place, but will he get an outright majority? With turnout once again set to be extremely low, President Macron risks losing a lot of his seats in the parliament, to the point of having to make deals with other parties like the Conservatives if he wants any of his reform programme to get through. Macron's second presidential victory in April was a high point in his career, but is it about to take a downhill turn? Uh, Hugh Schofield reporting from Paris there. Uh, Right, we're going to go to Bangladesh, where an extreme monsoon rain event has brought uh, record flooding, killing at least 41 people and stranding millions, and it's set to get worse over the next few days. I asked our regional correspondent in Pakistan, Kaswar Klasra, for the latest in Bangladesh. Well, a monsoon storm in Bangladesh and India has played havoc. At least 41 people have been killed in total rain. That caused devastating floods. And, and uh, sadly, these torrential rains that caused devastating floods that left millions of them stranded. And uh, floods are, you know, floods are regular miss, uh, to millions of people in low-link Bangladesh. But uh, this time, Heavy torrential rains were caused by, you know, uh, the climate change, which is increasing its frequency, velocity, and unpredictability. And same was the case there in India as well, where 16 people have been killed in North India. And uh, sadly, these torrential rains are still playing havoc both in Bangladesh and India at the moment. The Sikh minority in Afghanistan has been targeted in an attack, uh, hasn't it, on Kabul's Sikh Gurdwara over the weekend. What can you tell us about that? Well, you have rightly pointed out attack on a site of Sikh uh, that is called Gurdwara. It's a worship place for Sikhs in Afghanistan. has killed four people and injured, uh, I think, a dozen have been injured. The attack has shaken Taliban's government raising question about their ability to handle law and order in Afghanistan following, you know, the post-US withdrawal. And it also shows how vulnerable are the minorities living in Afghanistan. It's, uh, it's really sad news for the minority in Afghanistan.
Yeah, and the Intergovernmental Task Force, uh, Financial Action Task Force, I should say, says Pakistan uh, hasn't done enough to be removed from the from the grey list. What is that task force? Can you tell us that? And what does Pakistan actually need to do for it to be removed? Well, this is really welcoming news for Pakistan, as the FATF has confirmed that uh, Pakistan has successfully accomplished and may qualify to get out of the list of FATF. And this is an achievement with the civilian and military leadership in Pakistan have been working on since 2018. And let me tell you, under, uh, under the government of Prime Minister uh, Shabazz Sharif, the world community is acknowledging Pakistan's efforts and contribution to end money laundering and terror funding. This is really a very good news. And, uh, you know, uh, the Pakistan's important spokes sector has been under pressure and Pakistan's withdrawal from uh, Grey List would, you know, uh, would definitely add uh, to their uh, good thing as well. So following Pakistan's withdrawal from Grey List, it means the Pakistan's Pakistan import and export sector will flourish. And this is really a very good news for Pakistan. Yeah, just staying in Pakistan, uh, I feel like we talk about Imran Khan nearly every week at the moment, but he's uh, not giving up in his, well, mission, I guess you could say, to regain power. I see he's actually accusing the US of, of being part of an effort to try and oust him. What's going on there? Exactly. You're rightly pointed out. Former Prime Minister Imran Khan is not giving up since he was ousted from power earlier this year. And today, uh, on Sunday, uh, he called his uh, supporter to come out to streets and roads to protest against uh, the inflation and the poverty and, uh, and and the millions of supporters come out uh, on acting on his call as well. But uh, the good thing for Pakistanis is that the Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif is getting more power, more power each day. I think I think uh, the, the Imran Khan's uh, party workers and the people which who come out on his call, they will not do anything uh, to you know suppress the power of Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif because he is going strong and strong. But fact is that Pakistanis are facing huge inflation since uh, the, the incumbent government have raised. Uh, petrol and diesel prices to manifold. And this is really sad news. But on the other hand, Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif is powerful following the backing of Americans and, of course, the Pakistan's military leadership as well. So this is what making this is what is making Pakistani Prime Minister more powerful at the moment. Kaswa Klasra from Islamabad there. Right, we are just after 19 past five. I'm Nick Trubridge with First Up on RNZ National. Coming up, Māori astronomy academic Rangi Matamua will be joining us to explain the history of Matariki and the best ways to celebrate this Friday and more on yesterday's tragedy south of Picton where seven people, including a baby, were killed in a vehicle collision. There they are standing in the rear. Big one, small one, some It's uh, Monday, of course, and there's nothing more Monday than talking fresh produce. So joining us is our Minister of uh, Fresh Fruit and Veg, Glenn Forsyth. Morena, Glenn. Yeah, Morena, Nick. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Now, I'm going to throw it over to you for a change first up. Uh, what are we going to start with? 
Well, we've got a pop quiz for you this morning, sir. Oh, so no. Yes, yeah, so can you name the produce item we're talking about here with these newer four varieties? Honey Red, Hawaiian Blue, Gold Supreme, and Northland Rose. Uh, I think you know the answer. I think you know I don't know. And I'm being stitched up. And, and Enlighten me. Enlighten me. Kumra. Kumra. Yeah. Kumra. I... Yeah, yeah, uh, no, yeah. No, no I, I, I'm looking back over them, and honestly, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't have picked it. Oh no, it's pretty good. We caught up with one grower Dargaville about these, Ruben Vincent, and what a heck of a nice guy. The Northern Rose is like the Beauregard, Gold Supreme is sweet, and the Honey Red says it all. However, one one of the Kumara salesmen in Auckland this morning says the Hawaiian Blue is another level of sweetness altogether. He loves them. It looks like a gold, but flesh is purple, and that turns a shade of grey when cooked, which he prefers to roast or put in the air fryer. Now, these varieties only last until August, as Ruben also explained, they are brushed only, not washed or sprayed with any substance for longevity. So be sure to wash at home. Now, literally, these gems are hard to find, certainly not in mainstream stores. However, Greens and the Milford Shopping Centre has, has, um, has stocked these, and I hear so many amazing things about that shop. The Chinese are also very smart. They buy in bulk from the markets, and they offer these butte sweet potatoes out on WeChat groups. Ruben also grows the sweet yellow flesh watermelon, which we'll catch up with him in summer on, but right now, right now Nick, it's all about Primrith. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to Kumara's cousin, though, uh, Glenn, Pumpkin. It's pumpkin soup season. Have you made a batch yet? Oh, absolutely. Vegetables. Uh, things are a little scary. There wasn't an oversupply of any green vegetables this morning, sadly. Outdoor lettuce and spinach have been hammered by the weather, for example, and sometimes for this time of the year it's best to go for the bagged lines of spinach and lettuce salad leaf options. Silverbeet and radish room fair supply, and there were good numbers of mushrooms at all three Auckland markets today. The lovely sweet butternut is in season, and summer parsnips and Brussels sprouts. Forgot to add last Friday on Regan's So Sweet Parsnips when using shavings for a garnish to spray a bit of oil on them and bake until crisp. Uh, grab now, grab a pumpkin too for the family if you run out. They're having a great season. Pumpkin soups, roasted cubes in warm vegetable salad. Check out recipes for them on homemade pizzas or mix through a risotto. Now, serving a pumpkin provides us with a good source of vitamin A, which is essential for eye health. And citrus season, well, some citrus at least, lemon and lime. Um, uh, 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 it's lemon and lime season, but it's probably not really gin and tonic season. But, but, tell us, <laughs> but tell us about lemon and lime season, although Katrina's scrunching up her face, and that's probably because um, it's, it, she thinks it's a year-round thing. I probably agree. But anyway, lemon and limes, uh, tell us about them. Yeah, there we go. When we talk about how bad weather can decimate crops, it's good advice to, you know, Queensland strawberries. Currently, in prices in Australia, are over $10 a chip basis. Ten months ago, they were down to a dollar a chip. Anyhow, closer to home, our rain affected um, the flow of mandarin picking and supply shortened. Uh, we're going for the smaller size ones now in the one kilo bags. The skin was baggy, but flavours a little bit more punchy. The first of the Australian oranges are arriving, and they are selling like hotcakes. Good supplies continue on apples, kiwi fruit, persimmons, limes, and lemons, as you've mentioned. Ian from First Fresh in Gisborne comments that lemons are New Zealand's largest export citrus variety. Japan and the US are the main two markets, and in particular the Maya variety are exported to China and Singapore. Lemons are versatile and can be used in a range of dishes and cooking styles and make a great salt substitute. And finally, First Fresh are about two seasons away from commercialising 100% seedless lemon, which they believe will be a game-changer in the food service industry. Yeah, I'm trying to grow my own Myers and I'm having no luck, so I might be in the market. Hey, uh, thanks, Glenn. See you uh, in a couple of days.
the pearl of all a penny To Ukraine now, where heavy fighting is continuing in the east of the country and war, the war is taking a terrible toll. Hundreds of Ukrainian troops and civilians are being killed and injured every day, mainly as a result of Russian shelling. Ukraine's medical services are under enormous pressure and one British surgeon, uh, surgeon rather, that's David Knott, who has decades of experience treating war injuries, has been on the front line helping train Ukrainian doctors. The BBC's Wyra uh, Davis reports. At a hospital in eastern Ukraine, well within range of Russian rockets, British surgeon David Knott calmly carries out a complicated skin graft, saving the leg of a woman who suffered catastrophic injuries in a Russian shelling. But such difficult surgery is beyond many less experienced doctors. Patients were put in the posterior lateral position and a chest opened. Uh, so this was the wrong treatment. Not has been in Ukraine, not just operating, but passing on his depth of knowledge and experience. And you cut it in a longitudinal axis. His foundation runs courses in war zones from Syria to Yemen to South Sudan, and now the war in Ukraine. I know what it's like to be under fire. I know what it's like to be in an operating theatre which is being shelled. You're trying to do your best to try and save the life of the patient in front of you. But here, what we can do here is we we can train, I think we've trained 70 surgeons in six days. They've seen exactly what to do. Some of those here are frontline doctors. Where was this? Where were you? Okay. Momentarily back from the fighting where Ukraine is losing too many soldiers. Others are civilian medics learning new skills because their hospitals are full of people with new kinds of injuries. It's a horrible situation when you see the young guys with the mangled extremities, with the shrapnel wounds, with amputation. It's just disaster. The big draw might be David Knott, but the star of the show is Heston, a lifelike medical dummy with 50 separate surgical procedures replicating complicated war wounds. Costing tens of thousands of pounds, it's unique, part of a system that allows Knott and his team to teach life-saving skills. Travelling across Ukraine, it's tiring work for these veteran war surgeons. Their last destination, the frontline city of Kharkiv battered by Russian shelling, with thousands of casualties being treated by overstretched local doctors. I wanted to bring the, the teaching to them. I wanted them to really understand why you should do these sort of operations, how you can do them, and if you do them properly, you'll get a good result. Most rewarding for Dr Knott, medics here putting complex techniques learned on his course into practice. Now you do it. In this case, David handing control of a limb-saving operation to the Ukrainian surgeon. It might be more front of class than front line these days for David Knott, but it's the quickest way of passing on his breadth of skills to surgeons here who need them most. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from our business team is Nicholas Poynton. Morena, Nick, uh, what's 
the team focusing on this morning? I thought one of the first things, or good morning first of all. Thank um, you. Thank you. I think one of the first things we'll look at will be around this Jib Board Summit that happened uh, late last week between the Shareholders Association, Simplicity Sand Stubs and Simplicity Living, uh, Shane Brearley and Fletcher Building, which is obviously this ongoing crisis we're seeing of people not being able to get their hands on Jib Board. But one of the interesting things that really caught our eye about this was why was the Shareholders Association going along to this, given that Simplicity City had obviously raised all these concerns about not being able to get things for uh, for its own um, affordable housing development. But for the Shareholders Association, they were there essentially to advocate for shareholders because they're concerned about how this whole crisis, the reputational risks, were actually going to be invest shareholders' investments in the company. But coming out of that meeting, they were pretty disappointed. They said that the company uh, offered no apology, showed no humility for the current problems, and he's not sure that it's taking the risks to its reputation seriously. And the thing is, now that they've had this big meeting, it's hard to know where we actually go from here because, look, Fletcher Buildings recently announced that it's going to try and bring in more supply from overseas, talked about a million sheets of jib board. You know, hard for us to actually picture how much that actually is if that's going to help you know people who are struggling to actually complete building projects but you know th- this is going to be an ongoing problem uh, you've got people at the margins looking to import product but we've done stories about housing developments down in Christchurch where you know on the outside everything is ap- ap- actually finished but mm. everyone's just waiting to put the f- finishing touches on but they can't because they don't have jib board you know I, I don't think what we've heard recently around these recent announcements is going to help people in those situations and the greater concern is, you know, the way the payment structures work in the building industry, could we actually see more and more people go out of business because of this? So it's incredibly worrying, and it's hard to know what's going to happen from here. Uh, Fletcher Building, Simplicity came out of that meeting. They do own 0.8% of Fletcher Building, um, saying they're going to weigh up their options over the weekend. Unsure if we're actually going to see them, maybe try and force some changes on their board, but their shareholders meeting's not until November, so they're going to have to really keep a close eye on everything on that front at the moment. Yeah, well, what, what do you think this is? I mean, is this a case of too many eggs in one basket, you've got one big jib producer in New Zealand of course Fletcher, mm. um, when things go wrong, th- these are the sort of results aren't they? Yeah, that's exactly it and look, in Fletcher's defence what they'll say is you know, they've now got this they're now this, in this position in the market where they have 94% of the market but they said that's because one of its biggest competitors are just upped and left and no one's come in so they would say they've sort of found themselves in this situation. They are aware of the responsibility, but they didn't see this crisis coming. But obviously, there have been plenty of people saying that, well, you saw where residential building consents were going. How could you not see this coming? So, you know, the Commerce Commission inquiry, we probably won't expect a decision on that until maybe early next year. But given the Commerce Commission's track records on these, uh, on these inquiries, I'm sure people will probably be disappointed because it, it may not go far enough mm. in what people want to see, to see some real genuine competition happening in the market. Hey, thanks, Nick. Uh, Nick Fuenton there. You can hear more from the business team uh, on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Uh, and we'll just race around the markets while, we, uh, while we're here. Your Kiwi dollar is buying 63.04 US cents, 91 Australian cents, 60.01 Euro cents, 51.56 British pence, 4.22 yuan, 85.08 Japanese yen, 36.26 Russian ruble and 132.23 Pakistani rupees. Uh, Barry Guy is here from our Morena. sports team. How are you, Barry? Yeah, good and you? 
Hey, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, but glad I'm not a Blues fan. Glad I'm a Canes fan because, uh, well, the Blues, uh, well, they were blue at Eden Park on uh, Saturday, weren't they? They saved their, That's right. They saved their worst for last? Yeah, well, I suppose uh, you could say also that the Crusaders played uh, the best uh, finals football uh, as well, managed to turn it up when they needed to when the title is on the line. And that possibly led to the Blues also uh, not not playing at their best. I, I suppose it was to be expected in a way that because the Crusaders have so much experience playing um, at knockout and title uh, rugby that um, they just knew what to do. You know, they dominated uh, line out forward play, played well in that sort of wettish conditions as well, and um, sort of uh, strangled uh, in a way the Blues who really couldn't get anything going. So. Um, yeah, as I say, it would you know, one might say that uh, they were picking things with their uh, heart instead of their head. But I suppose when it comes to a final, you'd, it's hard to go past the Crusaders, isn't it? In a way, yeah, surely yeah. they're battle hardened, aren't they? Um, know what to do, know their way around a park in a final. Um, hey, look, let's let's switch tack here a little bit. Uh, Fina have banned trans athletes from competing uh, in women's events. What? What's happened there? Yeah. This has come also because uh, cycling did something similar recently. Uh, uh, there has been a bit of a debate in uh, recent weeks because there is an American swimmer, Leah Thomas, who became the first transgender NCAA champion in Division One history at the US uh, Champs recently. Um, and so swimming, FINA has come out and uh, they had an extraordinary general congress and they heard, this is this is FINA's report on this, a task force comprising leading medical, legal and sports figures. And they then voted on it and said that uh, 71% of um, people thought that uh, there should be, some, not some sort of ban, but rules put in place that really you have to have, uh, um, goodness, it's just gone out of my head, but by the age of 12, you have to have completed... Um, uh, Transitioning or um, mm. from yeah uh, male to to female, which I sort of um, and I'm not an expert on this. I, I find you know twelve uh, that's when you're going into puberty that um, yeah uh, when they believe that uh, these things should uh, happen. So which again I, I I'm not an expert on this. I when it comes to transgender, I sort of tend to follow the IOC. Uh, who yep. um, sort of control things. As I say, cycling and swimming have now brought in where they won't have transgender athletes if you know testosterone levels are a certain... They can't compete in women's events. Swimming have now decided. But there'll be an open category, which again I find a bit bemusing in some way that um, there's now going to be a men's section, a women's section, and an open category... Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm yeah. just I'm just struggling with it with it a little bit, and I yeah. will be interesting to see what the IOC come out and say because at the at the Olympics that you know when the next Olympics come around, are they going to have a third category for everything? I I, I can't see it. So um, of course, people are also saying that uh, you know because only one percent, less than one percent of the population is transgender, that uh, it's dis- discriminatory yeah. and and those sorts of things. So. Um, yeah. All I can just state the facts, really. I, you yeah. know, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not too sure. Yep. Hey, yep. Uh, I was going to ask you about the Warriors, but let's not go there. Uh, thanks, Barry. Uh, you can keep up with business throughout the rest of the morning through morning report. 
Right, it is uh, coming up to 40 minutes past 5, or 20 minutes to 6, of course. I'm Nick Truebridge, and you're with First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, in a moment, we'll be joined by Māori astronomy academic Rangi Matamua to discuss the history of Matariki and the best ways to celebrate this Friday. And we'll talk to the Deputy Mayor of the Marlborough District, that is Nadine Taylor, about yesterday's horror crash south of Picton, in which seven people, including a baby, lost their lives. Uh, the professionals of Morning Report are up after six, and for a quick preview of our flagship news programme is Corin Dam. Morena Corin. Atamania, good morning. Uh, good morning, everybody. Yes, we'll have the latest on the terrible road crash uh, in Marlborough yesterday. Uh, any updates that are coming through on that? Uh, we'll speak to the Prime Minister this morning, get her reaction to the by-election result in Tauranga. Big win for National. What does it mean, if anything, for the national political picture? Uh, get her reaction to that. Also talk to her about the current status on traffic lights. Uh, the, I think there is, a, well, there is a review due on the current settings, the orange settings by the end of this month. There are calls for it to be tightened or new measures to try and ease some of the pressure on hospitals. Kids Can are doing it tough. Uh, they need help. They are calling for more assistance to deal with kids that are falling through the cracks, particularly from the cost of living crisis hitting schools. And we will wrap up the rugby action from the weekend. Yeah, of course. I uh, hope mm. you're not a Blues fan. Well, are you a Blues fan? Oh, no. No, 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 oh, no. Good, good, no, good, no. Good, Born good. and bred Canterbury. Oh, well, yeah, okay, whatever. Okay, <laughs> see you later. Said. That's enough, yeah, see you later. Um, hey, don't miss it. Thanks, Corin. Uh, look, we all know how expensive food is these days, uh, so when we heard about a food truck opening in Dunedin charging, wait for it, $4 for a quality meal, we couldn't quite believe it, but we found it to be true. Only catches you need to bring your own bowl along, otherwise it'll cost you all of, well, still only $5. The Dunedin Bowling Club, so-called because of because of that bowl policy, is the brainchild of Liam Arthur and Jack. Jackie Bannon and opens this Friday. I caught up with the couple and asked how they came up with the idea. Liam and I have been thinking about wanting to start a cheap food project since we've known each other. And we've always been talking about it like hypothetically long term. And because of a lot of different surprises in our lives, like actually we were supposed to be starting up a cheese business in Ethiopia right now, but there's civil war there. We kind of ended up in New Zealand and decided we want to do something that feels meaningful to us and also is fun and something new. And especially because right now is kind of the time to do it. Like food prices are pretty expensive here, as everyone knows. And we're really interested in just creating spaces for people generally. So that's why we're really excited to collaborate with a community network in South Dunedin. And so people can come and kind of just feel this feeling of abundance and be nourished by affordable and good food. Let's just back up the truck a little bit. Did you say a cheese business in Ethiopia? Uh, yeah, that's right. Me and Jackie actually met whilst in Ethiopia. We were travelling there and we were sort of volunteering at this, it was called an eco-village, an eco-tourism project in Ethiopia. And we met the owners there and they wanted to start making some cheese because of some quirks. In the Ethiopian culture where a lot of the milk goes to waste because people eat vegans half there. And I had had some experience in cheese making, so I jumped on board and Jackie came along afterwards too. In terms of the venture in Dunedin, can you sort of just talk through, I guess, what people can expect and how much people are going to have to pay? What people can expect is that on Mondays and Fridays at South Dunedin Community Network, which is in South Dunedin, 
will be parked up in our food caravan from 3.30 to 8 p.m. And if you bring your own bowl, your meal will be $4, hence the name Dunedin Bowling Club. We provide a bowl for you. It will be $5 meal. And there's always one meal as an option. We have a, a main, for example, a curry. There's always a vegan or vegetarian version of each main. There's always a pudding, some drinks, some freshly baked bread with honey butter. And people can either come take the food away, eat it at home or wherever they like, or you can dine inside the community network space. It'll be set up like cafe style. It's a social enterprise really, isn't it? So can you just sort of talk about the difference between what you guys are doing and I suppose what a standard business enterprise would do? Because the meals are fairly cheap here, aren't they? So it's not about making, well, a whole lot of money, so to speak. No, I guess not. We're still a business, so we still need to make some money for ourselves to earn a living. So we're pretty similar in that way. I think the thing is is that we've been very careful from the start to keep our costs super low so we can offer food to people at a really affordable price. And it is very important to us personally to offer people affordable food because we think that has a lot of benefits. Because of that, we just try to make it work through our business plan, really. Yeah, totally. Are you... I mean, are you source? How are you sourcing the food? Is it is it local vendors? Is it where are you yeah, getting it from? Yeah, it's a bit of a mixture. Well, one of the things we do is we buy in super bulk for a lot of things. So we buy spices in like twenty kilo sacks, quite different from the usual restaurants and food trucks does. And we buy a lot of whole foods, and we often use quite a lot of waste products if we can. So, like one of the examples is that Evansdale Cheese, which is a local cheese making company, and Dunedin. We use their whey to make our bread and to also make some ricotta cheese to put in sauces and things. So if we use the waste products, they're often very cheap or free and that makes some good food at a reasonable price. It's double-pronged really, isn't it? You're, you're providing a cheap meal for people while also making use of products that would otherwise go to waste. Yeah, that's right. How many people are you expecting to cater for here? And, and can you talk about, I guess, the sort of prep that you have to put into this? Yes, we're hoping that each time we're operating, so twice a week, we'll be able to get around 300 customers. It's basically a number we came up on, kind of calculated, because of the profit that we need to be making to sustain ourselves and also sustain our lifestyle and grow a little bit as a business. So that's what we're hoping for. Liam has quite a bit of experience in restaurants in New Zealand and Australia, so he's pretty good at knowing how to organize in the kitchen and also we both worked together when we were in the u.s doing fine dining meals for 300 people at a time it was quite complicated because those would be like 15 different components to a meal so this is like a few components maybe three for a main like a sauce a main like a little carb or something and so we basically have like a day of prep before we serve maybe not even maybe half a day and then the morning of prep and we should be good to go Liam Arthur and Jackie Bannon there and coconut curries on the menu uh, when Dunedin Bowling Club food truck opens at South Dunedin Community Network this Friday Uh, Right, Friday will be Aotearoa's first ever Matariki public holiday to mark the start of the Māori New Year It's the most significant celebration in the the traditional Māori calendar occurring when the Matariki Star Cluster otherwise known as the Pleiades rises in mid-winter 
Uh, but for some New Zealanders, it's not an event they know too much about. So here to help is Indigenous Studies and Māori Cultural Astronomy academic Rangi Matamua. Morena Rangi. Morena. Let's start with, um, well, I mean, let's, let's start fairly general. Tell us about the origins of Matariki. So um, Matariki, like you just said, is Pleiades, and it is the earliest and best recorded group of stars in the history of humanity, actually. There's a cave painting that's 17,000 years old in France that marks um, the Pleiades, and right across the globe, uh, cultures used it rising or setting to mark change of season or harvest or planting or celebration, and in the Pacific, in particular Polynesia, Matariki was used as a marker of change of season. And when our ancestors arrived in Aotearoa, they noticed that uh, this far south, it disappears just as summer's coming on in the west with the sun, and it reappears just before the sun in the east around the shortest day of the year. So they thought, well, we can use that as a marker of New Year, and, and that's how it's applied here. Yeah, and so are there, uh, I guess, similar celebrations around the world celebrated by other cultures? Well, the Maypole Festival um, is celebrated um, when uh, the Pleiades returns and um, during the month of May. Um, that's celebrated in South America, North America, Africa, you know, right across Asia, India, China. So there are celebrations and acknowledgements of that star cluster around the globe, but Matariki, in the way that we apply it, is very, very Pacific Polynesian, and it is unique that the actual mid-morning, a mid-winter morning appearance is very, very unique to us here in Aotearoa. How would you traditionally celebrate it? Obviously, it's now got the status as a, well, a, an official holiday. But traditionally, how has it been? Uh, how has it been marked? So traditionally, what they would do is they would, because it's very closely associated with the environment as well and the promise of a new year and a new bounty, so they would collect food from the environment and they would actually cook it in an, in an earth oven and as Matariki rose, they would um, conduct uh, karakia and offer up the food to the cluster. And so that was the, you know, rising morning rise. There was a, a ceremony called... Uh, uh, a hautapu ceremony. But apart from the ceremony, the rest of the period of time was spent feasting and celebrating and um, music and entertainment. And it has three major principles, really. Uh, one is to remember those that we've lost uh, since the last rising of Matariki. So that's remembrance. Two is celebrating who we are and, and uh, our identity and with food and coming together as family and and sharing, and the last thing, it's about planning for the future and looking forward to a new uh, and bright future. So those are the three major elements that fed into the, the celebration. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, early Māori and I suppose that their skill as as astronomers? Because it, based on what you're telling me, it would seem they were, well, they were, they were pretty good at it. Uh, they, they were uh, absolutely superb at it, actually. They, and you're right. You know, um, astronomy is a, is a major factor that feeds into their ability to navigate. And they did crisscross the Pacific Ocean. You know, Matariki is the name that's applied to the cluster as far um, east as Easter Island, up into the Marshall Islands, through to New Caledonia, and 
pretty much every single island in, in the Pacific has matariki. Um, so I think um, their knowledge of the night sky, their ability um, to not only read the stars and determine when they rise and when they set and where, but also they implemented here a very detailed lunar stellar calendar system. So they would uh, look at uh, the lunar calendar and understand the position of sun and the reappearance of star and the actual lunar phase to determine their timekeeping system. So it was a very complex and detailed uh, understanding of the night sky. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Hey, um, hey thanks very much, Rangi, and uh, all the best to you this Friday. Uh, RNZ is going to be celebrating Matariki this Friday as well. Uh, we're going to have a broad range of programming across, uh, well, both radio and digital, uh, and the official Mana Watia uh, Matariki celebrations will be streaming live on rnz.co.nz, so don't miss it. Well, please say in the blink of an eye, uh, that was all it took for seven people to lose their lives when a van and a refrigerated goods truck collided near Picton yesterday morning. A baby was among those who died in the crash on State Highway 1 near Mount Pleasant, which has left the emergency services personnel who attended traumatised. First of all, here's Inspector Paul uh, Burrell from Tasman Police. A reminder for every single one of us, in a blink of an eye, seven lives are gone. We don't yet know the exact cause of the crash, however, research tells us that most injury and fatal accidents, uh, the contributors are speed, distractions, lack of restraints and sometimes impairment. So we'll be looking at those things to see how we can look for opportunities in the future so that we don't have to have events like this happening. He says it appears the northbound van had crossed the centre line. Two other people who were in the van have survived but are badly injured while the truck driver escaped with minor injuries. Well, joining me now is Deputy Mayor of the Marlborough District, Nadine Taylor. Morena Nadine, uh, what more do we know about what's happened here? Yes, Morena. Well, well firstly, um, we, what we do know is that it's tragic and devastating, and that's the word that's being used uh, here in Picton um, very much right throughout the day yesterday. Um, it seems just, and I'm following it from the media this morning, that, that perhaps the van was travelling from the south and trying to make a uh, Cook Strait ferry to get home to the north, um, and, and somehow that just even adds to the tragedy. What did the mayor discuss with police when he met them yesterday? I know there was a meeting scheduled. It was really um, just very much a briefing, uh, a, a, a catch-up, and, and also to talk about the first responders and how they were coping and any needs that they might have. Um, but I, you know, I think the reminder that we all took away from that was very much around um, the, the road safety aspect and the need to drive to the conditions. Can you talk to us about that bit of road? Uh, there have been several accidents there, haven't there can you can you tell us about those yeah there there have there's sort of been that one uh in the last couple of years right on the same spot or, or, or pretty close to it and one a little bit further along look one thing i have learned um and i sit on the transport committee at council and we get these um the accident reports afterwards so that we can see if there are any commonalities or, or issues with parts of the road is that each accident has a unique contributing factor um the the last loss it was a vehicle in a truck. Actually, the truck driver was um, was uh, prosecuted for dangerous driver uh, driving because he was uh, using meth, and so that's a unique contributing factor. Last time, and I want to be really clear, that was two years ago. That accident. 
Um, what we don't know is the unique contributing factors to this accident, and I think we have to wait for the uh, serious crash unit to complete its investigation. Um, but if there was an aspect to the roading, um, then Councillor Waka Kotahi would be talking about that. It's a state highway, so uh, Waka Kotahi are the lead agency there. Um, but we take a, a really strong interest in anything across our province um, that we could see that should be improved. Hey, thanks, Nadine. That's Nadine Taylor there, uh, Deputy Mayor of the Marlborough District. Uh, finally, this morning, a very quick bit of feedback. Kia ora Nakai attended Matariki in 2000 in Hastings, organised by Te Rangi ha- uh, hua te- Huata. Uh, this year, my sister and I will be farewelling. Much love, three aunties and a cousin who have passed away. That's it for us this morning. Uh, the brilliant team from Morning Reporter up next. Uh, and Nathan is back tomorrow. Have a good one.